If I don't know you, my name's Dan Halleck. I'm uh, the lead pastor here and thankful that you're here today. You braved the snow and came here. And even if you're a little later than normal, we're glad you're here. Um, you know, as Christmas week is upon us here, as we get ready to celebrate Christmas, I encourage you to open up your Bible this week and read one of the accounts of Jesus' birth given in the New Testament in one of the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament. And I was doing this this week. I was reading through Matthew's account, and I noticed something that I, I don't think st- stuck out to me quite like it did this week because I'm uh, the passage I'm preaching on today. But uh, let me read part of this to, to you, Matthew 1, 18 to 21. We heard some of it from the kids this morning, but says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the part that stood out to me was that last phrase, he will save his people from their sins, and specifically the words, his people. His people. As, as we've been going through John's gospel the past few years, Jesus says that he has come to save a people, right? Um, a specific people that he calls his people. He's called them his sheep. Uh, in today's passage, at least five times, he calls them those whom the Father has given him to save. Sometimes uh, this group of people in the New Testament is called the church. Jesus sometimes called this group of people the elect. And the apostles sometimes called this group of people the elect. What I find interesting here is that even Jesus' birth story, which we're celebrating at Christmas, mentions the fact that Jesus' mission was to save his people from their sins. You see, the Bible doesn't give us the impression that when God sent Jesus to earth, he was kind of crossing his fingers and hoping that some people would trust in Jesus for eternal life. Instead, what the Bible says, what Jesus says, that he has come to save sinners who he knows will definitely come to him. Okay? That's why he says in 637, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He doesn't say, I hope that some come to me. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And so, an obvious question for us is, how can I make sure that I'm one of these people? Right? How, how can I make sure I'm one of these sheep that belong to Jesus? And Jesus gives us a very simple answer. Repent, which means turn away from your sin and believe in him. Okay? Believe Jesus' words and trust in him. In Mark 1.15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Believe in the good news of Jesus. Romans 10.9 says, if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so, how can you know if you're one of Jesus' people? Trust in Jesus. <laughs> Trust in Jesus alone to be your Savior. Because he died on the cross and rose again to save you. If you trust in Jesus, that reveals that you are one of what he calls his elect. And let's say you've trusted in Jesus maybe for many years, but maybe now you might be worrying whether your faith in Jesus is strong enough to save you. And it's normal to be concerned about that, but your thoughts are deceiving you because that sort of thinking makes salvation about your ability to save yourself. You're not saved by your faith. You're saved through your faith by Jesus, okay? You're not saved by the quality of your faith. You're saved by the quality of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the purest, most perfect and holy Savior. He is the spotless lamb who was slain. And at the same time, he says that he's our great shepherd, our, our great shepherd. He says he's the good shepherd, and Peter calls him our great shepherd. And he, Jesus promises us in John 10 that my sheep, he says, hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my father, and again we see this phrase again, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Wow. It is, it is such a wonderful thing to be concerned about your soul right now and, and after this life. I was, I think I did a funeral yesterday I was in the hospital in ICU for three hours this week, and I heard about someone who passed away yesterday. So in our church body, uh, Merle Bjorkness, wonderful man. And he's with the Lord now. Um, but what it reminds us of is that we are, what Dylan said, we are he- we're a mist, is what the Bible says. We're here, our physical life on earth is a mist. It's here for a second, and then it's gone. So what is of the utmost importance is dealing with matters of the soul, (laughs) which will shape the way that we live here on earth. And if you're concerned about this, it's a wonderful thing. That's evidence that God is graciously working in your life. Um, But if your faith is in Jesus, then don't stay up late at night wondering if you've done enough to be saved, because I guarantee you, you have not. (laughs) Okay? Only Jesus has. This is why the gift of eternal life with Jesus, the gift of being saved into his family, is entirely a gift from God. It's called grace. It's called grace. We can never earn it from God. We can never pay God back for it. God's grace is ours through believing that Jesus is everything we need right now and forever. And now as we read the prayer that Jesus prayed just a few hours before his death, He's going to talk about his people, and he's going to talk about, uh, he, he's, he's going to pray requests for his people to the Father, and specifically here, he's going to pray for the disciples who were living at that time. This is what I would say, I know this, and the issue of election and predestination is a difficult issue. 
Yet at the same time, the Bible forces us to think something of it because it talks about it all throughout the Bible. And so what I say is this. When, whenever we're talking about these things, I get scared whenever somebody says, oh, I got it all figured out. <laughs> okay? You're not God. I'm not God. What we do is we take our shoes off spiritually and we admit that we're walking on holy ground here. These are things of the Lord that we can't fully comprehend, yet the things that he wants us to know, he's made most clearly in scripture and we submit to that and trust the Lord that he is good and that he's totally in control. So I just pray that as we would have humble hearts as we read his word today. Um, if you have your Bible with you, let's open to John 17 verses six through 10 we'll be in. and. Let's ask the Lord to bless us. Dear Lord, we need your help today. Uh, we thank you for how you've carried us to today. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that you've given us the word, your word in our language. And we thank you for revealing as much as you want us to know about certain things. And I pray that you would give us faith and um, perseverance in trusting those things you have revealed to us most clearly. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, you would speak through your word to your people by the power of your spirit today. If there's anything that I say that is not from you or of your word, then please make that pass away. Um, God, it's our desire to honor you with this time to commit our souls to you and to glorify your name. We pray for protection against the evil one in here and next door and pray for the blessing of the kids next door. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in John 17, six to 10, Jesus continues to pray to the Father. <clears throat> I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, mine, and I am glorified in them. This is the word of the Lord. So again, in this part of the prayer, Jesus is specifically praying for his 11 remaining disciples and very likely also for any other men and women alive at that time who were trusting in Jesus. And in verse 6, you'll notice that Jesus again calls his followers, quote, the people whom you gave me out of the world. And Jesus says that he has manifested the Father's name to these people, his people. Now, in ancient times, a person's name often reflected the entirety of that person. Okay? That means that a person's identity, a person's character, a person's reputation was connected with his or her name. And this is why so often in the Bible we read that God does things for his name's sake. Okay? For example, in Psalm 23, which many of you may have memorized, it says, He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. 
Jeremiah 7, uh, 14, 7 says, Though our iniquities testify us against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. And in 1 John 2, 12, it says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. God acts for his name's sake because his actions preserve the honor of his name. Okay? His actions bring glory to his own name, which is the same as bringing glory to himself. Jesus manifested the Father's name to his people. We read in the Old Testament that the Father has lots of names or titles that describe who he is. He's called Elohim in the first chapter of the Bible, which means he's the creator God. He's called El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. He's called El Roi, which means the God who sees me. He's called El Elyon, which means God Most High. And he's known to Israel by the name I Am, or Yahweh, or Jehovah. And when Jesus says in John 17, 6, that he has manifested the Father's name to his people, he's telling his Father, I have embodied and perfectly revealed to your people who you are and what you are like, Father. So that means for you and me, if you want to know what God the Father is like, then look at Jesus, okay? Because during his life on earth, Jesus perfectly manifested his Father's name. He perfectly showed us the Father, Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus has manifested and displayed the name of God, the character of God, and God himself to our world. And in the eyes of his church, his people... Jesus is wonderful and awesome, and he is the perfect manifestation of our triune God. In verse 6, Jesus prays to the Father, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So here Jesus says four different things about the people whom the Father gave him to save. First, Jesus says that these people came out of the world. Okay? So whenever we see the world in John's gospel, it, it always refers to God's creation in rebellion against him. The world. Okay? For God so loved the world. He's not talking about the bigness of the world there. He's talking about the badness of the world. For God so loved the world in all of its rebellion against him that he still gave his only son, okay? So Jesus is saying that the Father gave him a people out of the world. And before trusting in Jesus, his people were prisoners to sin. And so they followed the ways of the world. They loved the darkness instead of the light, is what he said in John's gospel. And this fits with what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and he writes to Christians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived 
in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So God's saying here that all of us in this room either once followed or are currently following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. Why would God choose to save people like that? Right? He gives us the answer. He says, because of his grace and according to his own pleasure and will. So the Father did not choose people for salvation because of their goodness or because of their merits. He chose to save those of us in his church despite our pride, despite our total lack of merit, despite our rebellion against him, despite our many mistakes, past, present, and future. He showed compassion on his church still, and he chose a people out of the world. And second, in verse six, Jesus tells the Father, yours they were. Okay, past tense. There, there's only one God in three persons. We know that, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what we read here is that in a mysterious way, God's people, the church, belonged to the Father before they belonged to Jesus. Okay? We read several other times in the Bible that the Father foreknew his people before he created them and even before he created the world. And the fact that God foreknew us before he created us, that's again, how does my mind get my, I don't understand how this works, but it's true. I'm not God. God knows, I mean, this makes perfect sense to God. The fact that God foreknew us before he created us, though, does not mean this, because we humans try to make it more tangible. Well, that must mean that I existed in some sense before my conception. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Mormonism teaches that, and other religions teach that. But the Bible says that God created us spiritually, physically at the moment of our conception. Okay? We had a start date. We don't have an end date. We will continue to exist in eternity, whether with the Lord in heaven or in hell with Satan. And so um, what this means, though, here in this context is that God the Father has a special affection for his people. He has a special affection for his church, for those who trust in Jesus, and that he has felt that way even before he made us. And so what this does, this speaks to the unique intimacy that the Father has with us, that the Father has with Christians. The Father is the one who sent Jesus to take away our sins. He's the one who sent Jesus to reconcile us, to bring us back to God. The Father loves us more than we can comprehend. And I encourage you this week to let that, that thought really shape the way that you come to God in prayer that the Father loves you more than you can comprehend. Because when you pray to God, remember this. When you want God and you want the things of God and you want to talk to God, he's the one who put that desire in your heart in the first place. See that? You're not bugging God by coming to him. You're not good enough to come to God on your own. We know that. So don't try to get good enough. You're only good enough in Jesus Christ. Okay? But remember that the Father is the one who put into motion 
this entire plan of salvation that would reconcile you to him from your brokenness so that you could be with him. And when you come to him in the name of a son, he is glad to have you there. And he loves your prayers. And he loves your time together. May we remember that. And may the Father's love for us be our catalyst to keep coming to him with our time and with our prayers. He loves us way more than we love ourselves. With a pure love. He really does. The third thing Jesus says in verse 6 about his people is that the Father gave these people to him. And again, he repeats this idea five times in these five verses that the Father gave these people to him. The Father put these people in Jesus' care to own, to care for, to be our shepherd, to redeem us, means to buy us back by, by his blood, to ultimately bring to us, uh, us to the Father by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so what this means is then not only does the Father have a unique, special, loving relationship with the church, his people, but also the Son has a unique, loving relationship with this church. The New Testament calls the church Jesus' bride that he bought with his blood. He bought us with a price. And so we are Jesus' people in a very special way. And the fourth thing uh, that we read in verse six about God's people is that these people, Jesus says, have kept your word. Now this is a weird one, okay? It's kind of a funny thing to say because we know the disciples were far from perfect, okay? They were sinners. They were mess-ups just like the rest of us. So in what way had they kept the Father's word? Let's look at the bigger context here. Let's look at the Gospel of John. In John 3, 36, Jesus said this. We've already talked about this. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we, we see here that the way that we obey the Son, the way that we keep his word is by believing him. That's what keeping his word is. We believe him. We believe the gospel. That's what the gospel tells us to do, to believe it. He's not saying the disciples have kept all the Father's commands and scriptures perfectly. He's saying that the 11 remaining disciples have obeyed God by putting their faith in Jesus and in his words. And he reiterates this in 17 verse 7 when he prays to the Father, now they know that everything you have given me is from you. So he affirms that the disciples know by faith that everything he says is the truth of God and that it is from God. So the Gospel of John does not record each individual disciple's confession of faith in Jesus, but John does give us at least a few of those accounts. He says in uh, chapter 6, verses 66 to 69, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's his confession of faith. And apparently the other ten remaining disciples had made similar declarations of faith in Jesus. 
And that's why in verse 8, he says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So one of the most important things that the Father gave to Jesus, which Jesus in, church, uh, in turn gave to his church, is the Father's word. Earlier at the Last Supper, Jesus said, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And this means that the words of Jesus are the words of the Father. And here Jesus describes what his disciples did with his words and what everyone who belongs to Jesus does with his words. He says the disciples received his words. They did not reject his words, right? They received them. Uh, the disciples came to know in truth that Jesus came from the Father. And then the disciples believed that God the Father sent him. So they believed that Jesus truly is God and that he truly is the Father's Son. And so as we talked about a few minutes ago, the way that you know that you belong to Jesus is if you believe. <laughs> do you believe his words? Do you, do you with... Uh, do you believe Jesus' words and what he's saying in this passage? Do you accept them as truth or do you reject them? Do you believe he is the way and the truth and the life or do you believe he's lying? Do you believe that the only way for you to experience true life and satisfaction on earth and after your death is by believing in Jesus Christ? If, if you trust in Jesus to save you now and forever, if, if you believe that he is the only hope that you have to cleanse you from your sin and your guilt, if you desire to know him and to abide in him, to make him home base for you, that he is where you live and dwell, then you belong to him. You belong to him. The reason we know that is because our flesh doesn't want him. Our flesh doesn't want Jesus. Authentic faith in Jesus is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And after making a person born again, the Holy Spirit subsequently grows his fruit in their life, which further proves that they belong to him. We cannot make light of genuine conversions that the Holy Spirit does in people's lives. It's a miracle. It's a miracle for all of us who've experienced that. And now in verse 9, Jesus, he prays for his disciples. He tells the Father, I'm praying for them. And then he says this. He says, he makes a distinguishing mark here. He says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus tells the Father he's praying for those disciples who were living during his time, okay? And in a few, pa a few verses, he's also gonna pray for us, for future Christians. But right now, we're talking about those disciples who were alive at that time. And he specifically says that he's not praying for the world, he's praying for those whom the Father gave him out of the world. See, that's because there's no hope in the world. We don't pray for the world. We pray that God would save people from the world, pull people out of the world, Make your kingdom of light break into the world and push back the darkness of the world as it is. That's what we pray. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed for the early Christian church. This was 
the inception of the New Testament church as we know it. And what he's saying here, hear him right though, he's not saying he doesn't care about the world. He's saying that he doesn't care about those who belong to the world. Rather, Jesus' prayer here shows that God loves his church in a very special way that he does not love the world. That's the whole reason he gives for praying. He says, I'm praying for them because they're yours. And he says at the end of verse nine that he, uh, yeah, that he prays because they belong to God. And what this means is that God loves his people, his adopted children with a special love, just like a parent loves his or her own children in a much deeper and special way than he loves other people's children. D.A. Carson uh, writes, however wide is the love of God, however salvific the stance of Jesus toward the world, there is a peculiar relationship of love and intimacy and disclosure and obedience and faith and dependence and joy and peace and blessing and fruitfulness that binds the disciples together with the Godhead. This is why you read this. If you sit down and read John 13 to 17 again, you think about how many times Jesus says, I am in the Father, Father's in me, and I want them where you are, and they are in me, and there's just this unity between the church and the Father. And the fact is that the Father has adopted believers into his family. He is now our heavenly Father. Jesus is our friend, the Spirit is our helper, and we are an eternal family with God and with each other. That's what he's saying. And he has a distinct love for you if you belong to him. He has a distinct love for you. In verse 10, Jesus tells the Father, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So if we belong to Jesus, we belong to the Father. If we belong to the Father, we belong to Jesus. Why is that important? Because some religions teach that you can belong to God and not belong to Jesus. Jesus says, there's no way except me. <laughs> if you belong to God, you belong to me. The God, God and the Son, they're directly connected, right? To trust in God is to trust in Jesus. To trust in Jesus is to trust in God. And so, we belong to Jesus, and if we belong to him, that he is glorified in us. He says, I'm glorified in them. If the Spirit has made you reborn through faith in Jesus, then Jesus is glorified in you because, <laughs> this is amazing, because spiritual rebirth is entirely a work of his grace for his glory, Right? So the only thing you and I have to praise God for is him. <laughs> we praise, thank you, Lord, for everything you've done in my life. You're to credit for everything. All I have is yours. Everything, God. And if your heart is thankful to God, if you want to honor God and live for God the way that he tells you in Scripture, Jesus is glorified in you. If, uh, if you want to use your career and your hobbies and your money and your family and your free time to bring glory to God. God is glorified in you. He's gonna do the works in you that he prepared you to do in advance, Philippians 2 says. 
And Jesus is glorified in you by being the Savior who forgives you. He's, the, he's glorified being the, by being the one who holds you. He's the one who holds you close to him when you sin and when I sin. He's the one who's holding us when we turn to him again in faith. And he's the one who deserves all our honor and glory. And so as we saw in verses one to five, when we looked at that the past two weeks, um, Jesus' primary desire, it's not to be glorified by you and me. His primary desire is not, it's to be glorified by the Father. Because ultimately, what we think of Jesus is not nearly as important as what the Father thinks of Jesus. So Jesus' primary desire is to be glorified by God. That being said, the whole reason that you were made, the whole reason that God created you was to bring him glory. And me too. He created us to love him and to be, to be the recipients of his grace. He created us to see him as awesome. To realize that he is the God. We are not the God. We are the created. He is the creator. He created us to, to obey him because life is better when we obey God. <laughs> it's not easier, but it's better. And he loves us and he created us to point to him and point others to him with everything he's given to us. We are his image bearers. We image forth to the world the glory of God. And when we're doing that, we are most fully fulfilling our purpose as human beings. All right. <laughs> and we have a little time left. So I want to apply this passage to our lives in another way. Because I think this passage forces us to wrestle with this question in other passages in Scripture. Let's say you have a neighbor or loved one that you want to become a Christian. And maybe you've invited them to church. Maybe you've shared the gospel with them. Maybe you've planted a seed in their heart somehow about Jesus. Maybe you're wondering what else can you do. The next step is this. Should you pray for them? Should you ask God to save them? Will your prayer for them make any difference if God has already decided who will or who won't be saved? Well, the answer the easy answer is yes. <laughs> of course you should pray for non-Christians because the Bible tells you to. God tells you to. God tells us over and over again in his word to pray, to pray about all things, and that includes praying for the salvation of non-Christians. Even Paul, right in the middle of his discourse on predestination in Romans 10, it says he is praying for his non-believing Jewish relatives and peers to be saved. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Yes, we should pray for non-believers. And God tells us in James 5 and other passages that by his grace, the powers, the, the, the prayers of a righteous per person are powerful and effective. They make an effect. And so our prayers change things. They impact the way things turn out. And so you might ask, well, how can my prayers change anything if God is sovereign and has already predetermined how everything's going to turn out? And the answer to that question is that, yeah, God is sovereign and he is in control. And in fact, he is so sovereign 
that he not only establishes the end from the beginning, which he says he does, but also he establishes the means to accomplish the end. And if we're talking about the end result of God purchasing a people for himself with his son's blood on the cross, then God will also establish the means to call his people to himself. Okay? God could have chosen all sorts of different means to call his sheep to himself, but at least two means he's told us here in John that we know he uses to gather his sheep, the proclamation of the gospel and prayer. And you don't have to go any further than this chapter, John 17, to prove this point. Why in the world would Jesus be praying to God and for his church and for future people who would be pulled out of the world if prayer for non-believers was ineffective? In the coming verses, Jesus asks God, keep them in his name. Keep them in your name. In other words, he's asking the Father not only to convert the members of his church, but to keep them saved by his power and by his will. See, the fact that God puts onto your heart to pray for a non-believer might very likely be the means that he has ordained to give that person new life through faith in the gospel. On the contrary, if you don't believe that God calls and converts his sheep with his sovereign grace that breaks over our will, then I don't know what hope you have that anybody will ever be saved. Especially after reading John where Jesus has said if he doesn't intervene in our lives, then we will stay in our fleshly condition of hatred toward God. You gotta wrestle with these hard passages where it says that people hate God and we hate the light of God And what we really want is to stay in the darkness because we don't want our evil to be exposed. This is what we know. God in his sovereign grace saves hard-hearted and hard-headed sinners with the gospel. And he has graciously ordained our prayers as means through which he works in our lives and in the lives of others. There is a position called hyper-Calvinism, which is very unhelpful. And it's the belief that, well, nothing matters if God's predetermined everything. It's like, well, if you believe that, then you don't believe the Bible at all, okay? Some of the greatest catalysts in the history of the Christian church for missions have been those fueled by the belief that God has chosen people to save. John Piper writes about hearing the president of InterVarsity speak in 1967 at Urbana. The man's name was John Alexander. He'd also been a missionary to Pakistan for many years, and he stood in front of this crowd of 15,000 students, and he said, at the beginning of my missionary career, I said that if predestination were true, I could never be a missionary. But now, after 20 years in Pakistan of struggling with the hardness of the human heart, I say that if I didn't believe in predestination, I could never be a missionary in Pakistan. Meaning when you get out there and you realize how hard the human heart is and how massive the obstacles are and how entrenched the resistance is, if there is not a sovereign God to solve this, let's all go home. It's a missionary doctrine, he says. Irresistible grace is our hope in missions. It's not a hindrance to missions. 
God's grace in our lives is not a hindrance to missions and evangelism. It's the exact opposite. God's sovereign grace, his power is the reason we so confidently can pray for the lost. It's the reason we go to foreign countries. It's the reason in our bulletin we pray for the unreached. Because God has promised that his sheep know his voice. They will come to him at the sound of his voice. And nobody will ever snatch them from his hand. My guess is that some of you have prayed and prayed for certain people in your life to turn to Jesus and trust in him. And they haven't yet. Or they've passed away. And as far as you can tell, all signs point to them having never turned to Jesus. What then encouragement does the Bible have for you at that point? Well, Remember this first, that the truthfulness of God's scripture is not dependent on our circumstances, okay? So just because it appears that your loved one never trusted in Jesus does not nullify God's promises that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Hear that? It doesn't mean your prayers had no effect. The fact is that if you obeyed the Lord by praying in Jesus' name for the salvation of your loved one or for strangers we don't even know, you honored and glorified Jesus' name by doing so and you created an effect which you and I can't totally see in this life. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. And further, I would have a very difficult time saying with 100% certainty that your loved one is not with Jesus. We hope and pray that in the last moments of life, even in the most hard-headed and hard-hearted people, God works in their hearts and minds to give them saving faith. It's our prayer. We cannot assume that happens to everybody. However, the idea of deathbed conversions is not foreign to scripture. In Luke 23, we read about the criminal on the cross who's next to Jesus. This man likely lived his entire life in rebellion against God, and he had apparently committed crimes that were so heinous that they merited him being crucified. But as he hung on that cross next to Jesus, that man confessed his sins, and he confessed his faith in Jesus as God. It's a powerful story. And Jesus, who's hanging on the cross next to him, assures the man that that very day, you're going to be with me in paradise today. <laughs> That's incredible. And so that, what this says is that that criminal truly was what Jesus says, he's one of my elect. <laughs> he's one of my church. But it wasn't until his final breaths that he declared faith in me and was justified in my sight. And in the sight of the Father. For some of us who have lost loved ones who appeared to be non-Christians, this is our hope. We trust God who is sovereign and good. We trust the character of God. The fact that he always does what is right and most loving. And we hope that somehow our loved one surrendered to Jesus in the quietness of his or own heart. As parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents, the most loving thing that we can do for the kids in our lives is to tell them the gospel that God loves them in Jesus and that he died on the cross and rose again for their sins to serve them and to pray for their salvation.
and our prayers must be fueled by faith in a God who is so gracious and so compassionate that he loves to save the lost and that he is powerful enough to overcome even our most evil behaviors and our strongest resistances to him. The Bible shows us over and over again that God saves whoever he wants to save whenever he wants to save them by his grace. Think about the thief on the cross, the polygamist, Abram, the adulterer, King David, the Ninevites, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the Roman centurions who killed Jesus and then felt the earthquake when Jesus died and said, oh my goodness, this is truly the Son of God. The Apostle Paul, who's out killing Christians. Lydia, the businesswoman in Acts 16, God opened her heart so she could understand the gospel. The suicidal jailer in Philippi, who's about to take his own life, and then he gave his faith to Jesus. He put his faith in Jesus. And so many other rebels we read about in Scripture and we know of, like you and like me. God breaks into people's lives. He gives them grace to believe. And so we pray that God would break into our kids' lives right where they are at. Right where they're at. In their sinful behaviors, in our sinful behaviors, that he would give them saving faith to trust Jesus and to see him as glorious. If you do not fully understand how God is totally sovereign and at the same time allows us to make real choices for which we are responsible, join the club, okay? And thankfully, understanding all of this is not a requirement for salvation, okay? But I would say this, don't allow the fact that you don't understand God to stop you from coming to him or to stop you from trusting him or to stop you from praying for other people. We are finite. He is infinite. God shows us all throughout Scripture that prayer is one of the central means he has ordained to push back the darkness in our lives and world, to change our lives, and to expand his kingdom here on earth. So his church must be a praying people. So bringing it home, as we prepare for Christmas this week, let's be praying Let's be praying for ourselves as a church, but let's be praying for non-Christians that they would hear the voice of God in the proclamation of the gospel, that God would use our prayers in their life, that the Holy Spirit would break in and overcome their resistance to him and he would show them grace. Let's celebrate that Jesus was born as a baby boy to save his people from their sins. And with the same innocence that he had as a newborn babe, the man Jesus bore our sins on the cross, completely innocent. He became our sins, and he became our guilt, and he suffered and died for our sins, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And all of this is for the glory of his name and for the joy and life of his people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for helping us with this passage today. Um, your ways are so much higher than our ways. Your thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. Um, what we know, God, is that you're gracious and compassionate and that you love to save people and that had you not broken in, come to our earth and broken into our, each of our lives, we would be hopeless, Lord. Um, 
And so as we do not fully understand how you do everything, I pray that we would be faithful to do those things which you clearly say in Scripture you want us to do. I pray, Lord, that passages like this would drive all of us, wherever we land on it, to have a deeper love for your word and to explore Scripture for ourselves and to see how you have revealed yourself in your word. God, this week, as we think of Christmas, we, we pray that uh, we would point ourselves and others to you and remember the gift of your grace in coming for us. I pray that you would open up opportunities in our lives to love on our neighbors and our coworkers, to show them your love that's working in us, however you want to do that, God. Um, we want to worship you now, God, for your goodness um, and your grace in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.